0: when in reality, even as adults, we're still figuring things out. Things in our lives shift and move and we're constantly having to reassess and reexamine. And I don't know that a lot of middle grade books always sort of show kids that and show kids that adults are still having to figure things out too.
1: Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanty Show.
2: Moving your magical schools to the Deep South.
1: I'm Sean. I'm Jen. And today we're joined by Eden Royce, author of Root Magic and today's focus, Conjure Island. Welcome to the show, Eden. Thank you so much for inviting me. It is great to be chatting with you both. Yay. Yay. Yay! So before we get to questions, for Eden. Uh, we want to remind folks that there is a listener suggestion form if you have questions or thoughts or want us to cover something or whatever, you can go to skiffingfanny.com slash listener suggestions with those thoughts. We usually take those and we will use them for listener mailbag shows. So put them in there. And if you read this book and you liked it, we also want to know that too because that's fun. And then go put the reviews on the internet because Eden needs to sell books.
2: Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, everybody should buy your books, obviously, because they're brilliant, and we love them around here, and I'm pretty sure that there's some kids that are going to love this book especially. So s- to start us off, tell us uh, what Conjure Island is about.
0: Conjure Island is about a young girl named Del, who is from up north, and her uh, father's in the military, he's deployed... She stays with her grandmother, who unfortunately takes ill, and she is sent down south to her great-grandmother, who she's never met, who runs a school for conjure magic. And at first, Dell is disbelieving, and through a lot of investigation, adventure, mystery solving, she comes to realize her connections to her family history, to her Southern culture, and to magic and a greater community than she ever thought
1: possible. Oh, I just made
0: that up. That sounded really good. That did sound really <laughs> good. Really good.
1: Yeah. I'll send you the transcript so you can keep that and use it again.
2: <laughs> so I, I want to start out just with Dell as a protagonist because. She's a really wonderful character, very different than I think a lot of people are going to be used to in any type of middle grade, because not just like in the size of her family, but just like what she's grappling with. So can you talk to us about her as a central character?
0: Absolutely. Um, I'll intro it a little bit by saying that coming off of Root Magic, when I was speaking with my editor... Um, We were having a discussion about what my second book would be, and his suggestion was we'd like it to be something very different from Root Magic, but still with similar vibes. He didn't use the word vibes, but I'm uh, paraphrasing. So I thought, well, the obvious thing to do to make it different is to, instead of doing a historical, make it contemporary. So that was the first thing I wanted to do. And I said, the second thing to make it very, very different is take a protagonist who isn't Southerner. So I was writing from two points of view that I'm not used to writing from. I'm not used to writing characters that are non-Southern who lead uh, the story, but also I don't write a ton of modern stories. I usually will either write historical or I'll write something that could be sort of set at any time. Um, So it was a a learning experience for me um, from a lot of points of view. I haven't been in a classroom in a while, so I had to have a lot of editing with, okay, um, let's change this chalkboard um, to a whiteboard (laughs) 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 or something like that. So (laughs) certain small things I had to have editing on. But one of the things I really wanted to keep in my middle grade, which um, is important to me in how I grew up, is I don't always want to get rid of adults in a middle grade narrative. I know that that's a route that some authors decide to take so that the kids can take center stage and do what needs to be done in, in the space of the manuscript, in the space of the story. But I feel like In a lot of cultures, specifically African-American culture, it isn't something that I experienced as a kid. There was always an adult somewhere helping or at least being around. So I will have the kids able to learn and explore and go on adventures and discover things and figure things out for themselves, but they still have adults there in case, or they still have adults there to... Provide guidance. They still have adults there that sometimes they're the ones that help the adult. So I don't always completely extract them uh, from the story. But I also feel like one of the things that I gave Dell is a lot of personal responsibility at a very young age. And that is something that I think some kids have to struggle with uh, a bit of adultification. I had a short story published, I believe it was last year, and I didn't realize this at the time. But once it was published um, with Worlds of Possibility, one of the trigger warnings was adultification of a child, uh, trigger warnings, content warnings, and I didn't realize um, I didn't realize that. But it is something that a lot of kids have to deal with. They they're Hyper maturity and hyper responsibility for a number of reasons. You have a father who is away a great deal. Dell's mother isn't in the picture. I don't want to necessarily say exactly why in the book because I think this is probably for the most part a spoiler-free uh, interview about the book. And she lives with her grandmother, who relies on her to do some things from a physicality point of view. In a lot of ways. So it's taking care and learning caretaking at a very, very early age and being hyper confident and hyper competent and being finally pulled out of a situation where your competency has guided you through a lot and put into a situation where you don't know everything. You don't understand how this particular part of the world works. You're now completely on the back foot going, well, how do I function? Because I'm used to having control of my environment. And for the first time, she's having to be a kid kid. And she's having to be guided, not just by adults, but by some of the other students. And it's really hard for her to go, I don't like this. I don't know anything. And having to start from the beginning again. And that's what I wanted to present that That's an okay thing. It's an okay thing to not know and to come in on the ground floor of something and learn from square one. Because I think that sometimes, especially with our, everybody's got a phone and can record you at any moment. Sometimes kids are scared to fail. They're scared to mess up. They're scared to look stupid. And sometimes you have to do that in order to learn and in order to figure something out. So I wanted to present all of that in, in Hunter Island.
1: That's really interesting that you, especially this last part about Dell having to almost like learn how to be a kid or, or exist in a kid's space where kids are doing kids stuff because it's, it does like the beginning of this book. I don't think it's spoiling it, but uh, her dad's in the military. So they move a bunch, which is a thing mm-hmm. I can speak to having been a Navy brat. And I know while Jen and I had talked that had not necessarily been directly experienced, but the military thing still resonates uh, in a lot of ways. But I wondered if to some degree, like, Dell has developed a defense mechanism where because she can't easily make friends because she's moving all the time, she just mm-hmm. doesn't have those connections. There's these great lines, like, I think in the first chapter when she's talking to her grandmother, where she's like, you're basically my friend. And the grandmother's like, well, what about kids your age? And she's like, "Now nah, I don't need that. <laughs> like, I'm good. And I yeah, I wondered if that was to some degree like a def- defense mechanism that you like intentionally just tore away where she can't use it anymore and she has to like open up.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I'm a military kid as well. Uh, even though by the time sort of in my family I came around, um, we'd stopped moving and we'd settled in Charleston, which was a Navy-based town. Um, but I wanted Dell to be in a position of finding her family, sort of not just family, but friendship. She's sort of learned how to speak more adult. She's learned sort of the adult jokes and watched the adult TV shows with her grandmother. Kind of, you know, I imagined it. It's not in the book, but I sort of imagine it as her grandmother's got on, I don't know, her soaps or her afternoon (laughs) game shows like Price is Right and Wheel of Fortune and that sort of stuff. And that's how she experiences the world. She doesn't have a lot of kids her age to go, how do I sort of slot myself in as cool and interesting to get to know when I move the next time? And she doesn't have those sorts of um, coping skills for someone her age to make friends quickly. And she just has stopped trying.
2: I mean, in in that sense, like what her I mean, there's like multiple layers of disconnection for Dell, obviously. And I think one of the ways is even just in in how the family functions as a military family, in that they choose to live off base, which is like a secondary mm-hmm. level of disconnection from a yep. a culture that she's ostensibly very directly a part of, which is military life, but she doesn't even get to associate with kids who are also a part of that, right? Like she's, she's disconnected from, she's like so many layers disconnected from, uh, not just family roots, but like, uh, like fr- the friend connections in the military and then further down the line so she really just does have her grandmother and her father but her father is obviously deployed a great deal of the time so once you remove that like very direct like sort of what's what's the term when you're codependent uh codep- codependent is the term <laughs> Duke's laughing at me, of course.
1: I just find that funny. Uh, You you named the word. I named the
2: word, (laughs) yes. Yes. (laughs) My brain. My brain, let me tell you. But you're even removing that codependency that she has with her grandmother because they both do very much rely on each other. And and we get some of that, you know, coming towards the end of the story in the ways that, you know, even the grandmother has has relied on her to almost like as as a way to protect herself from her own like traumas over time, mm-hmm. because she has this thing that she's responsible for now, and that's going to be everything that the grandmother does as well. Like this is this is a duo that is super tight, and it's lovely to see on one hand, but it it does sort of reinforce that that disconnection for for Dell from things that she would normally be involved in as an eleven year old girl which i i actually really loved seeing because i think you're right i think that is a really common experience for a lot of kids because for so many reasons and and some of them are perfectly fine reasons and some of them are not so great reasons but there are a lot of kids that are in households where that's that's the story you know mm,
1: absolutely I think to some degree that this book, it, it, and also with, with Root Magic in a different way, because it's a different kind of book, uh, there is an element of like rediscovery going on here where uh, mm-hmm. a part of that is rediscovery of like your family's roots, but then it's also like a cultural rediscovery because she's sent to this school and she's suddenly being interacting with this side of her family and these people who are in fact part of her her family's ancestral culture, but is not. It's not a thing she's had connections with her whole life. And I was kind of curious, because given that this book and Root Magic kind of all, both are kind of in that conversation on, as a literary conversation about rediscovery, is that is that something that you kind of saw yourself deliberately doing? Or was it sort of a thing that emerged because you were writing these stories?
0: I think it's something that emerged. Um, I had someone once in an interview ask me about themes in my work and what themes do I like working with? And I honestly... I honestly have people tell me what themes are in my work, and I go, really? Yes, absolutely, you're correct. Um, But I never really go into it necessarily with the idea in mind of I want to tackle these important themes. Um, But what I do go into it thinking is I want to bring out a an additional side of conjure culture, hoodoo culture, African American culture that may not always be sort of at the forefront of speculative fiction. And I also wanted to bring it up as sort of in direct contrast to what you see in a lot of magic schools, which is who's the person we're going to fight with the magic and, you know, making it be a very sort of um, combative magic type, which in a lot of films, books, you see hoodoo, voodoo, a lot of African traditional religions presented that way. It's an evil thing that we use to attack other people. And I wanted to show this magic as what it was intended for. I'm showing traditions. I'm showing connections to, you know, West and West Central African religions. I'm showing how these magics were used to build community and help remember people. So I wanted to wrap all of that up as part of the story. And I think that taking a girl who isn't familiar with any of that stuff, not like Jez was in Root Magic, who grew up with these traditions and just was sort of waiting to for her chance to learn them and be brought into the fold. This is someone who doesn't want to be here in the first place. It's Hot is uncomfortable. I don't know any of these people. How long do I have to be here before I can get back to my real life? So she has to be taught from the ground up. And I wanted to give the reader a chance to learn from square one with Dell, as opposed to root magic, where, you know, we're coming in at a level and we're sort of boosting you up within that level. But right now we're coming in completely on the ground floor. And not even really coming in with an admiration or an interest or a knowledge of this magic. Much less a deep-rooted connection. Because this is a, a character who just feels connected to very little except to these two people. But I wanted to give her, unbeknownst to her, some grounding in Conjure. Because she does it at the beginning of the book without knowing that she's doing it. It's just something that her grandmother has taught her that they always do whenever they move to a new house. And she's never said, you're doing a hoodoo cleansing ritual. She doesn't understand any of that. She just knows this is the process of what we do. And it's like a lot of um, African-American people who have certain practices that they do around certain things and they have no idea what the actual origin of those Practices are so. I wanted to bring that into into Conjure Island.
2: Yeah, I think one of the ways that this is this book is is really new, unique uh, is that because you've used Dell as your main character, um, and and I think it speaks to a, a larger theme as well, right? Uh, in that historically, there was a divide that occurred, especially. In terms of the great migration, right, to the North. And this is a Northern African American child who is learning about those roots that she has become disconnected from for whatever reason. And, and though with through Dell, it's just, it's, it's like a one generation disconnection. I think it, it does tie to that larger tradition of, um, and that larger historical context of a divide that occurred when you know, the African-American, like, sort of American diasporic movement to other parts of the United States. And what Contra Island sort of does is that it teaches us a new cultural context to work from, right? Like, we go into things like Western magical school traditions of, you know, a name that I will not speak, for instance, right? We go into that knowing everything that's there. We know about elves, we know about, you know, other things like magic books and, and brooms, for instance, in a cer- certain context, right? But you're going, no, no, that's not the context of this book. That's just, just get rid of that. We're, we're throwing that one out. Uh, and we're going with a new context. And I one of the things that I really loved, as you mentioned, is that the, the central conflict here is not like our usual sort of central conflict about a big bad, and I don't want to spoil anything, but that's not necessarily what you're working with here. There's there's not that thing. Instead, like one of the main contexts here is obviously that or conflicts. One of the main conflicts here is is that That disconnection is occurring very specifically because of grief and what grief Mm. does to break us from our roots and from each other.
0: Yes. Yes.
2: So can you kind of talk about that as at like the way that you flipped the sort of magical school tradition on its head, I think, with Conjure Island?
0: Oh, absolutely. I think that as you were saying, grief is something that can pull people apart, pull families apart, because everyone processes grief differently depending on their personal experience with loss. And I think in a lot of situations, people don't always have the resources to seek the help that they need in order to process those feelings and deal with them in a healthy, open, expansive way to allow them to not always necessarily just move on, but live with that loss. So people who haven't had the benefit of being able to deal with grief in a way that helps them incorporate and live that loss have a tendency to create walls around a thing and that's what Dell's grandmother has done in this book. She's created walls around a thing, and she's made the purpose of her life raising her granddaughter, not including her granddaughter in her own life, but I am going to live my life for you and through you in a lot of ways. And Dell doesn't really sort of understand this at the beginning. She just thinks, this is what I've always known. And this is the family that I was given. So this is how life is. But as she moves, however briefly, to be with her great grandmother, who she didn't even know existed, she's starting to sort of push at the edges of what she knows her reality to be why didn't you tell me about this person? Why don't you talk about your mother? I mean, your mom is alive. And why don't I know about her? And her grandmother is not in a position to help her with that. So she goes into this place that she doesn't really want to go into already with questions. And it's not until there's a lot of discovery and trial and error that she realizes that grief has, separated some of the some of the most important people in her life from each other and in addition to grief there's also the factor of time and the longer time goes on the harder it is to come back and talk or discuss or bring up those hurts or those feelings in a positive sort of way and it will take someone coming into the situation who's brand new to look at it from a different point of view and a lot of times you know people go to therapy now say i don't know this is not necessarily the best analogy but the one i'm going to use go into say marriage counseling because the two of those people can't communicate in a way that's healthy and productive so they need someone else who doesn't know anything about what's transpired between the two of you except something's wrong to be able to come in and say, well, why don't you just say this? Why didn't you just say that? Why don't you do these things and put these pieces in place and be able to find a way to heal together? So in a lot of ways, Dell functions like that therapist in a way. In a way, she's still doing that sort of adultification ritual, but she's doing it in a space where she's now having to realize, I am a kid, I can't just fix adult problems like I think I can. I'm coming into this as a newbie to everything, but I kind of see what's happening as I'm moving through this story. And I'm putting these pieces together and I want to fix it. I know I can't fix it, but I want to create an atmosphere in which the two people involved can fix it. And bringing that magic in that context and um, looking at conjure magic from that point of view, it is really sort of a, a trickle down from those great migration times where people did leave the South for better jobs, better opportunities just to get away from the memories and the thoughts and the grief of people that they've lost or things that had happened to people that they loved but in doing that and removing themselves physically there was also a removing yourself from certain knowledge certain stories and that's also what dell comes to realize that she's also connected to she is connected to something bigger and you don't have to have a big biological family in order to have a community
1: this made me think a lot about, there's this moment, I wanna say it's about a quarter of the way through the book where after she sort of learned uh, that her great-grandmother's you know, a person that exists and uh, she's talking about conjure magic. And I appreciate it very much that you just like point blank in the book deal with the idea of like, well, why didn't you just use conjure magic to like save people? Uh, And it's like, well, because it's, it's not that kind of magic. That's not, it's not like fantasy. I mean, it literally is a fantasy book, but like, I mean, it's not, it's not that kind of like fantasy magic. It's more complicated and its uses are more complicated. And I I think a part of what made me think about is what you've been talking about, about like, this is a moment that I think the book could go in a different direction. I'm not saying this is the right direction. I'm saying it's a different one where it could just say like, oh, but magic could. And then we could have to deal with this really like ugly conversation about like, why didn't you do this nice thing? Uh, The morality of it, but rather to just sort of say, no, that moral question isn't even part of this because it can't be a moral question because there isn't a solution. And ultimately I think that the book comes down on, yes, there are these abilities and things you can do that are magical and beautiful but human problems are still things that must be solved with human action. And I, yes. I think that's really beautiful to see in a book. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the, that idea of human humans have to solve their own problems. You can't just, you can't just band-aid it over with magic as it were.
0: I, I wanted to address that really upfront in the book, because I think that's in a magical book, you know, I think that's a legitimate question that readers would probably ask. Well, You're hyping up this magic. Why can't this magic fix these other issues that you've mentioned that have happened in the book? And I think with certain fantasy magics um, in a lot of books, there's this idea of everyone is, everyone understands, I should say, everyone understands that as long as you have the right combination of ingredients or say the right words or whatever, the magic will work and the magic will fix the thing. Instead of realizing that magic has such a human component, and we are fallible creatures, you know? We aren't certainly perfect in how we function and move through the world. As flawed people, we have to understand that the world is a flawed place, and we can only operate within those flaws. And I wanted to make sure that we understood that magic wasn't a cure-all in this book. It's a way of coping. It's a way of making sure that you're able to deal with the things that happen in life as a result of just living and making sure that you're able to stay connected to those that care and those that need you. So I wanted to be really upfront about it's not going to fix everything or everyone, because you want it to, we still have free will. We still have choice. We still have decisions that we have to make on a daily basis. And in Conjuring and in life, we have to work on ourselves. And that's what the magic does. The magic, and I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, but there's a part in the book where Dell's looking at one of her teachers and she thinks, how can this person be a teacher they certainly don't look like a teacher they're a little and she comes to understand that at the time she doesn't really have a good view of magic a good opinion of magic so how is somebody that feels that way supposed to do something positive with these practices where you really don't have any confidence or any understanding or any appreciation for what it is or what it does, how does that work for you? You can put the pieces together, you can say the words, you can stir the ingredients, but if you don't believe it, if you don't have you know, an intention and a focus for it, what do you really expect it to do? So I wanted to address that really upfront so that the reader and the characters can have an understanding of this is, this is the realm that we're functioning within. So we have to work on ourselves to figure out how this magic is supposed to work for us
2: so one thing that occurred to me while you were talking is i was going to ask a a question about uh the motto of Vesi conservatory for the wonder arts which is protect educate survive but i think one of the things that you do here is well for one thing the only magic that's actually taught in this is communication really Which is not to say that there isn't more things that can be taught at the Bessie Conservatory, but that the focus in Contra Island is communication and the ways that communication break down and the ways that you can reconnect, right? And the one thing about the, the motto that I think you examine very closely is that Protect, Educate, Survive that last word, survive, is not necessarily enough, right? Because of the fact that it's very specifically a way in which communication breaks down because protection has been applied that causes one of the conflicts in this story. That goal of survival ends up breaking down the very way that connections can be made, that, that people can actually thrive. So can you talk about how you, you came to that motto in the first place and, and a little bit more about how you sort of, through the story in this, kind of pushed back on the motto, even while holding it up as something that is, that is good and noble and true?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Protect, Educate, Survive was something that came to me fairly early in the process of uh, writing Conjure Island, because protect with that being the, the essence of the magic, you know, it is initially and originally meant to protect the practitioner and their loved ones. And educate is, you know, we all understand that in order for not just magic to survive, but for knowledge in general, we have to educate people and we have to make sure that the knowledge and the information is there, you know, which is one of the things that um, Dell is lacking, certainly, in knowledge and information in order to be able to educate herself on what's gone on. But education was also back when, especially back when the VZ Institute, uh, VZ Conservatory was begun. Education was a way for people to leave the South. You know, you would get a certain amount of education and then you would move to other places to get jobs or that you would move and then get education in order to stay or move up. But then survive would not only be physically surviving, but it would also be surviving with your culture intact, with your sense of self intact, All of those bits and pieces above and beyond your physical body, you know, keeping intact your self-esteem and everything that makes you the person that you are out there in the wide, wide world where people are going to make life challenging. So coming up with that motto was a sort of a simple thing early on, but as I started writing the book and getting further into the edit process. I went, the teachers in Conjure Island, Del's great-grandmother specifically, hold this motto up to a high standard. This is what they teach. This is what they talk about day one in the welcome speech. And this is part of your uh, instruction here and part of your life. When in reality, Del's great-grandmother struggles with that exact same motto. She's upholding it, she's saying it, it's above the door when you walk in. But in a lot of ways, her grandmother hasn't, her great-grandmother hasn't survived well outside of having her own daughter, Del's grandmother, around. So it's something that I realized that the characters have to examine within themselves. Throughout the book, because you are a teacher here at this school, you think, I uphold all of these traditions myself. But then you realize that your coping and your survival hasn't really been exactly quite fitting with what you wanted your life to be, with what you wanted your experience to be. And I wanted that to be something that seemed very concrete and structural, like This is carved in stone, you know, at this conservatory. When in reality, in practice, it's something that people who are even teachers and instructors and seen as very skilled still struggle with on a day-to-day basis. And being put into a position as an adult, as a teacher of questioning that, you know, so we're challenging not just the kids, but we're also challenging the adults and letting kids see that adults still struggle with big concept things too. And I think it's an important thing to let kids see that adults don't always have the the answers. Adults haven't figured everything out. I remember seeing a post on Twitter um, sometime last year um, where someone posted and they just said, I can't believe I'm going to turn 30 this year and I haven't figured life out yet. And there's this idea and this concept that, at 30 years old, you should have you should have it done. You should have it sorted out. You know exactly what fits into what slots in your life. And great. Everything is set up so that I can just hit play on the rest of my life and it's done. There we go. When in reality, even as adults, we're still figuring things out. Things in our life shift and move and we're constantly having to reassess and reexamine and I don't know that a lot of middle grade books always sort of show kids that and show kids that adults are still having to figure things out too and hopefully in the long in the long run get away from the idea that adults always know everything they do in a lot of ways know about that specific kid in a way of being able to guide them and give them advice or tell them stories that will help them make decisions. But a lot of times it's okay to go, you know, I'm not sure. Let's figure it out. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to think about it. Hey, I'm going to look some stuff up online and see if I can get some input from some experts. So having the confidence to say, I don't know, to a kid and for a kid to go, Oh,
1: that's no okay casing for an adult not to know. So you're making me think of a whole bunch of really interesting thoughts, <laughs> which <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of them that just happened because of the last thing you said, which I found really fascinating, which is this idea that the idea that like adults are supposed to have all the answers to some degree means that. Either adults are supposed to have them, but then we're supposed to pretend that we don't so that we can give kids agency in discovering answers to questions. So we go, oh, I don't know. Let's Google it together. But really, you're supposed to know. But the other side of that is, well, but if the adult doesn't know, then it's actually granting the kids even like a, a great deal of agency by saying, well, if the adult doesn't know, I'm part of the process with the adults of figuring out the answer. We're doing this together, which is. Normally we don't talk about with, with kids, if kids have agency, it's, it's often in a lot of middle grade, not all of it, but like a a lot of it, the kids are like that, as you said, at the very beginning of this episode, the the adults are gone for some reason, or they've like Mm -hmm. wandered off into the woods or they've been kidnapped or they're dead. If it's a Disney movie. Right. And like, (laughs) and so the, the kids have agency because it's the only choice the story has left us with because the adults aren't participants in that but i find it more interesting to say well what if we didn't do that and the adults are act and the kids are like in conversation together yeah like it's a it's a story about kids so the kids are doing more of the 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 stuff it's still i think that's really interesting to say like if we could work together Because to some degree, maybe that is a thing we've kind of lost sight of societally. Mm -hmm. Like we think of kids as just these like little alien creatures that don't know anything, but it's true. They don't, they just don't have wisdom per se, or they don't have the knowledge, but it doesn't mean they don't have the ability.
0: Absolutely. I think one of the things is not having the experience is one thing, but not having the ability is completely separate. It's like you come to a, an internship, maybe. I won't say a new job necessarily, but you come to an internship, you have interest in the company or the business or, you know, the process, whatever it happens to be, but you don't have a lot of knowledge. So you have interest and eagerness and you have uh, a desire to know, learn. And a lot of times that's all you need for that type of relationship with let's say the the craftsperson so the craftsperson has the experience to say these are the tools these are the things we're going to make you know but what they need is a really interested eager participant so having those two things come together I think is really um, the best analogy that I can show for Adele and her great-grandmother in Conjure Island you've got the person that has a lot of this knowledge and you have someone that however hesitantly at the beginning has hopefully some ability but has an interest and it's just going to take time and patience to put those bits together but when they do even the craftsperson can realize i didn't i didn't know that that's something about this particular process that i wasn't aware of and being able to learn from each other in that in the scope of the
2: book. Yeah, I mean because in some ways Dell is being stymied by the adults, right? Like they're mm-hmm. they're they're very specifically saying I don't know the answer to that question or I'm not going to tell you the answer to that question.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that propels Dell to be like, well, then I'm going to learn it myself. I'm going to go google it myself. And there is nothing that is going to stop me. And in Dell's case, very specifically, she's like, and nobody is going to help me do it. I'm going to do it myself. Yes. Because that's what she's had to rely on. And, and her grandmother, but her grandmother is not part of the picture at the moment, you know, that she's on Conjure Island. And I And I love how one of the things that she has to learn is that she doesn't have to do it herself and that there are other people that will help her in this process. Very particularly Ava, who is a delightful character and I love her (laughs) obviously more. There are more characters that will help her in this process. But one of the things that she has to do is sort of remind the adults in the end, you know, that, that all they had to do was like be part of the process to answer her questions. And like her grandmother, Nana Rose, you know, uh, believes that as long as she teaches her about her cultural traditions, that somehow that will answer Del's very personal questions. Mm-hmm. And it's not. That's not all Dell needs. Uh, she doesn't just need the, and, and I apologize for pronouncing it incorrectly earlier, the VZ sort of that protect, educate, survive. That's not all she needs on the broader scope. Mm-hmm. She needs those those personal questions answered. It's a really beautiful process that she goes through that, that all of the characters, but very specifically her and her uh, great-grandmother Nina Rose, uh, go to to realize that they've, they've both kind of been going at it wrong up until a point in time. You know, like... Del was trying to do everything herself because she didn't get the the answer that she wanted right away. And I want to make that a very, very specific point, is that if she'd just been patient, perhaps they would have, like, gotten these answers anyway. But she's she's a very determined child, so she's like, no, I'm gonna steamroll over everybody, and I'm gonna... I want to learn this now! <laughs> which is such a particular tradition within magical schools, right? Like, there is no way you're holding that child back from learning something that she wants to learn, even if it might be a little bit safer to just be a little bit more patient. Yeah, you know. Maybe.
0: I will say that I love Ava um, as well. She, I, I, wanted, I wanted there to be at least one other kid. There are several other kids in the book. But I wanted there to be at least one kid that was pretty much Dell's polar opposite, you know, who is not just sort of immersed in culture and from the South, but also who is extroverted and excited about magic, knowledgeable about the region that they're in, but also who is not a charge in, let me do everything for myself sort of person. And Again, I'm trying so hard to not do spoilers, but there's a part where Del gets into a bit of trouble and she's wondering how she's going to get herself out of it. But she's stuck in this situation, giving her time to sort of rethink her choices uh, as to why she's in this predicament and what she's going to do. And, oh, my gosh, am I going to die here? Spoiler, she does not. (laughs) <laughs> when Ava shows up in her, outf- in her, you know, special outfit and is just like, you know, you could have just listened to me, but, you know, you-, you chose not to. And I wanted her to have this sort of conversation with her while she's in this predicament and Ava's standing there, not in the same predicament, going, look, I can help you. And we can do this thing together and figure out what's going on at this place. Or I can just sort of step away and let you be on your own to do everything on your own. Like you want to do things. So what's it going to be? And it's that sort of, you can't just be friends and be close with me when you want something. And then do things on your own when you've gotten the information from me. It's not right. It's not fair. So you're going to have to pick. And I like that she tells Del at this time where she's like, if I get you out, you're going to just go charging off again and you're not going to listen to me. I'm going to stand here and tell you everything that I want to tell you while you're stuck. (laughs) So at least I know that you're listening. And I just, I, I wanted to have a situation where Dell is forced to not be charging around the island doing, you know, the most as she usually does. And so she's in a position where she's like, oh, I've, you know, she doesn't use this language, but you know, she's been hoisted by her own petard. And she's in a situation and Ava shows up and she's like, well, so here we are. What are we going to do going forward? I've done nothing but help you all this time or try to help you despite yourself. You're going to have to make a decision on that now. And I think that's something that a lot of us, even as adults struggle with letting someone in, letting someone help, letting someone, if not shoulder the burden, let someone else's knowledge and experience keep you from making similar errors or making mistakes. And I wanted to give that to Del, even though she doesn't pay any attention to it whatsoever, until later in the
1: book. Just running
0: headlong into things.
2: <laughs> She's a very determined 11-year-old. Yeah, I mean? you know.
1: <laughs> okay, so I have to switch us up to, frankly, the the thing in this book that's more important to me than anything else. It's, the, it's a very important two-part question. And I'll ask the first part first. And I just want you to know, Eden, this is incredibly 100% serious. There's absolutely no joke in this question whatsoever. What is your relationship to alligators? And how many do you personally know?
0: <laughs> Sorry, com- completely serious question.
1: Yes, very serious.
0: Well, personally, my experience with alligators has been from a respectable distance, as I know things about alligators. I was surprised when I did do a little bit of research about alligators, how many people thought alligators were very slow on land. And they said, oh, well, they're fast in the water, but they're really slow on land. And I thought, I don't know what alligators you've seen, but I have seen alligators move very, very quickly. And people underestimated how strong they were I've, I've seen a fairly young alligator with one swipe of its tail knock an adult male over, you know, just legs out from under them, boom. I think that there's this idea that, oh, well, if you just run quickly enough, you'll, you'll escape it. And I wanted to create creatures and characters in this book that people may not always associate with South Carolina and South Carolina islands. So the alligators, yes, probably people would associate that, but there are several other creatures that are encountered that people may be surprised that appear uh, in South Carolina barrier islands. But I have seen many of them, all of them referenced in the book, certainly, but my personal relationship to alligators uh, is very respectful and, uh, (laughs) distance and, um, personal relationships. I have not had a close personal relationship, uh, in recent years.
1: (laughs) I do like that you bring up how strong they are because you're, you're completely right that people underestimate them. There's sort of like two reactions to alligators, people that don't take them seriously, who are stupid. And then people who think they're like the most dangerous thing ever, because they're just giant lizard monsters. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's an there's a alligator in the book, which is why I brought this up, Old Lundy. It seemed to be you're having some fun, perhaps, or you were engaging with to some degree of almost like taking away some of the, the myth of the South, in this case, a lot of South Carolina, through your presentation of the landscape, sort of, yeah, there's all these unusual things that people outside of this region probably find alien but they're not really that alien they kind of are just natural parts of this world and you just have to get used to it and i was i was curious if that was something you were you, you were kind of dispelling some of the misunderstandings of the south through its landscape and its nature I, d- I don't know if that was something you thought you were doing but that's what it felt like to me also and i will say also in and uh and root magic a bit too as well
0: i think that it's It's important for me to portray these parts of the world as accurately, but as at the same time, I do want to maintain that magicality that is a natural part of the region and a natural part of the fiction from that region as well. So in Root Magic, I do mention Red Wolves. I mention Marsh Rabbits. I mentioned a lot of the local animals that are indigenous to the area. And yes, that was a very conscious decision to do that, because there is a prevailing idea from some literature and some film what the area of the country that I'm writing about looks like. I won't necessarily comment on the accuracy of any or all of those, but I did want to make a conscious decision to include landscapes and flora and fauna that I was used to seeing. So I did the same thing in Conjure Island with the landscape, the animals, a slightly different take because we want to sort of have recognizable landscapes, but I also wanted to have some variety in how they were presented also. So yes, very conscious decision. If that's if that's
1: answering your question. <laughs> it, it does. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> so this brings up kind of the point though, like you very specifically are coming from the Southern Gothic tradition. And in that tradition, the South is portrayed in a very specific sort of fashion, which is like, you picture the, the rotting homes and, you know, the kudzu everywhere. And, sort of, like, it being taken over by the natural landscape and, you know, dark and and muggy and and all of those things. And this is not that. So can you talk about, like, how the ways in which you decided to just kind of, like, move away from the Southern Gothic with Conjure Island?
0: I will say with Root Magic, I definitely, anybody asks me what genre, and I say it's a Southern Gothic. Um, it's set on Wadmala Island. It's still very much in that Southern Gothic tradition. With Conjure Island, it's a fantasy, but I do personally consider it to be a Southern Gothic fantasy because when I think of the Gothic, the Southern Gothic specifically, it's decay, yes, but it's also oppressive atmospheres. And for Dell, that appears in... It's too hot, it's too bright, it's too intense, and that's the the oppression of the land and the surroundings that she has. So I still wanted to keep that Southern Gothic feel with the oppressive atmosphere, with the family secrets, with those types of things, unusual creatures, um, hybridization, you know, of creatures. So I still have those tones because that's, in a lot of ways, a a part of what I like to write. But I wanted to present it in a way that was more fantasy. So I had a little bit more leeway with how does the magic work? How do the creatures function? How do they communicate? How is information disseminated to characters? So there's much more of that sort of what I consider to be um, on-screen magic, you know, that sort of things floating about and things happening on their own, that sort of magic that occurs. So there's a little bit more of that. So I've taken some liberties with those things in Conjure Island, but at the core of it, the deep magic that has to be, accepted and embraced to be wielded that is very close to the core of what conjure magic itself is but i definitely think absolutely you know the southern gothic is a large part of what i enjoy writing the uh short story collection that i have coming out later this year which is for adult readers called who lost i found is i call it stories but a lot of them are Southern Gothic stories, you can tack on Southern Gothic fantasy or Southern Gothic horror to some of them, but there are a lot of those same tenets of the Gothic of, what's the mystery? What are people hiding? What are, you know, what are you going to uncover in this? How is the atmosphere reflecting the internality of, you know, the characters and how do these characters' um, internal darkness manifest within the short story? And how does that bring about their success or failure in the story? And is it really a success or a failure depending on how you look at it? And I think the Southern Gothic, just, just like other cross genres where you put together different subgenres or tack on or, or create new subgenres to fit a specific type of story, Southern Gothic fantasy to me is having these mores and tenets of Southern Gothic and what it means to be a Southerner, whether you are steeped and rooted in the culture from a young person or you come into the culture at a later time, it is still something that is to a certain portion of the population... A weird, creepy, strange thing. But for Conjure Island, I wanted it to be something that Dell comes into where she's hesitant about it, but once she gets into it, there's a certain amount of wonder and awe that comes with that. So I think that those two genres, subgenres, subgenre and genre, whatever, <laughs> those two things can come together. <laughs> To create something that not only shows a history and a culture, but also adds in a little bit of embellishment just as a way to lift the traditional darkness that might be associated with Southern Gothic. So if you'll notice also in Conjure Island, there isn't a lot of time spent in the book where it's dark like outside most things happen during the daytime you know there's very little it's dark outside you know a reflection of anyone's feeling about magic or about themselves or anything there's really only you know one big nighttime scene you know or occurrence and even one of those is lit in a specific way so you know I try to make sure that with that those gothic tones there was a certain
1: brightness to the book so we have to wind down because otherwise we could ask 16 more questions and we i think eden has a life so do i oh that'll be <laughs> i mean i did say i think so but i know you'd mentioned you have a short story collection coming out and so that I think we could take a second to come back to that because the question we usually ask is what are you working on next? And
2: And is it a sequel <laughs> to Contra Island?
1: Well, obviously there's the, the short story collection so perhaps mention that again. But if there is anything else you can tell us about we'd love to hear about that, that too.
0: Absolutely. Um, I've already mentioned the short story collection which is called Who Lost, I Found which is available for pre-order now from Broken Eye Books. I absolutely uh, love the stories that are included there. Some of them are reprints. There is one new uh, novella, novelette uh, in there as well. Beautiful cover by at Tropical Blue on Instagram. And I absolutely adore it. I have just turned in edits for my third middle grade book, which is a middle grade horror called, well, Southern Gothic horror, um, called The Creepening of Dogwood House. So I'm expecting that that will come out in 2024, although I don't have an exact month and date. Of course, I will be shouting about that online whenever I do get some dates for that. I also have a longer work that is more sort of adult fantasy, but I'm still working out some push-pulls with uh, contracts for that. But hopefully sometime soon... I'll be able to get that squared away as well. So since I've been doing so much middle grade, I've been trying to push forward with some adult uh, stories and things lately, but I'm not leaving uh, middle grade. And at some point, hopefully 2024, uh, there'll be something in the YA category for me. So looking forward to, to having that. I'm trying to sort of have a little bit of everything out. We'll see if, We'll see if that's a good career move. Um, but it's really what I love writing and writing different things and for different age groups and in different genres. And it's just enjoyable. And I think that's a big part of being a writer. You need to love what it is you're writing.
1: So the big question then is for folks who would like to find your stuff, you and your stuff, where could folks go to find you?
0: You can find me um, at my website, which is com. I have gotten better in recent months at updating it. I also have Twitter, which is at Eden Royce, and I'm on Instagram, which I'm still sort of slowly poking around on, uh, which is at Eden Royce Books. Uh, Also in my bios, you can usually find my link tree, which has links to interviews and appearances and sometimes reviews and just, sort of all those things that I shout about on various social medias that I want to have in one place if I can.
1: That's fantastic. Well, I know this is really tough for you to be here again, uh, but thank you so much for for coming back and talking to us dorks.
0: (laughs) It is always a pleasure to chat with both of you, whether it's about books or films or what should be in books and what should be in films. So I'm always happy to spend time with you
1: both. That's awesome. Thank you. Well, for folks at home, uh, again, we have a listener suggestion forms. If you have any thoughts, skiffingfanty.com slash listener suggestions. You can find us on most social media sites at skiffingfanty, but we have a link tree slash skiffingfanty. If you want to go to that to find where we're at, or just go to our website, skiffingfanty.com and the places where we're most active are right there up on the top, right? If you like what the show does, Please join our newsletter at skiffingfanty.com slash newsletter and go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash and give us reviews on iTunes because I I have nothing to do with my life. And so I just sit and stare at the iTunes reviews until one pops up and I've been staring for over a year and a half. So help me. I'm just kidding. I don't stare at my iTunes that's... reviews. That's <laughs> Eden sitting here going, that would be like staring at your Goodreads reviews. And that's not a good idea, Sean. Don't
0: do it. Don't
1: do it. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> For me, I'm at Uh I do go on the, the Twitch place uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Central at Alphabet Streams. I also have a Patreon, but you can just go to my link tree slash Sean Duke, and you'll find all of my stuff and I'm on socials and stuff. And Jen, what about you? Where can people find you?
2: Uh, Obviously, you can find me at looptyloo.com and at looptyloo on literally every social site that exists that only has one word as your social media tag.
1: Perfect. So I have to make it awkward. Obviously. Jen, I just want you to know that uh, I have sent you a special gift in the mail. It is a 12-foot alligator named Sparky. (gasps) He has his own juggling set. And your job will be to train him to juggle.
2: Thankfully, my husband knows how to juggle. So I'm on (laughs) it.
1: And on that note, awkward ending and scene. (laughs) If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash Thank you for listening.